Hello, and thank you for listening to the Chiropractic Research Podcast Series. My name is Dr. Dean Smith. I'm a clinical faculty member in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Thanks so much to all of the listeners out there. I wanted to share a recent review on iTunes from Dr. Zach Jipp. He says, I absolutely love Dr. Smith's podcasts. He brings the best of the best in the chiropractic profession to share current research knowledge with his listeners. His podcasts are engaging and informative, and I always end them being more knowledgeable than when I started. Great leader for the profession. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Jip, for those kind words. If you like the podcast, please leave a five-star review on iTunes so we can attract even more chiropractors to listen to the best in chiropractic research. Also, please consider making a contribution to chiropractic science to keep those podcasts coming. You can do so on our website at chiropracticscience.com by way of the contribution page or simply purchase the Chiropractic Science Slides Presentation Package, which are evidence-based patient education slides for your practice. We are also on social media, including Facebook and Instagram. Connect with us there to stay up to date on all the current happenings and learn about the latest podcast episodes when they're posted. Okay, on to the podcast. My Goals for producing these chiropractic research interviews are to get the word out about chiropractic research from the experts that are actually doing the research, and secondly, to encourage collaboration of researchers, and lastly, to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. Well, let's get to the interview with Dr. Cindy Long. Dr. Cynthia Long is Professor and Director of Research at Palmer College of Chiropractic in Davenport, Iowa, and Director of the Office of Data Management and Biostatistics, or ODM, at Palmer Center of Chiropractic Research, or PCCR. She holds an MS degree in statistics from Iowa State University and a PhD in biostatistics from the University of Iowa. Dr. Long joined the faculty of the PCCR at its inception in 1995 and contributed to developing PCCR's research infrastructure, in particular creating the ODM to support the research design, data management, and data analysis needs of PCCR research investigators. Since 2000, she has directed the ODM staff as data coordinating centers for 15 on-site off-site and multi-site, federally funded clinical trials of chiropractic care. Dr. Long is the principal investigator of expanding evidence-based clinical practice and research across the Palmer College of Chiropractic, a grant awarded by the National Center of Complementary and Integrative Health of the National Institutes of Health. She is also the director of Palmer's MS in Clinical Research, where she teaches 10 credit hours of biostatistics. She is on the editorial boards of JMPT and JCCA and just completed a three-year term as an elected member of the American Statistical Association Board of Directors. Dr. Long, it's a pleasure to have you on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. 
Yeah, I've been looking forward to this interview for for some time because I know statistical questions are always on the minds of practitioners who read articles and and there's always questions to be had about them. So uh, really looking forward to this. Can you tell us about how you became interested in statistics and then biostatistics? Sure. So when I was in college, um, like many people that go to college, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my life or what kind of career I wanted. And But I was very good in math, so I kept taking math classes and ultimately declared a math major. But then I noticed that we had a, a really new, I went, to, I went to Winona State University in southeastern Minnesota, and they had a, a fairly new program um, that was a bachelor's degree in statistics. And I, you know, I didn't know much about statistics, and but I, I noticed that I didn't have to take very many more classes because I had so many of those math classes to double major in math and statistics. And so I decided to do that. Um, even after taking that program, I knew not much about statistics or really, you know, I knew I, I didn't think I wanted to teach high school math and I was thinking that was probably the only career choice there. Um, so I finished all my coursework and then with this program, you had to do an internship. And so I, um, Winona is very close to Rochester, Minnesota. So I was able to get an internship at the Mayo Clinic in the Department of Biostatistics. And so I was, I did an internship for six months and very clearly, um, very soon after, after getting there, I realized, okay, statistics is, is great. And of course, biostatistics is just, that related to, to healthcare research, and that's what I was doing at the Mayo Clinic. I was working as a data analyst um, under the direction of, of statisticians or biostatisticians. And I think, you know, they asked me, I, they hired me as a data analyst as soon as my, as soon as I finished with my, um, with my internship. And so clearly, I mean, it was just a very exciting exciting profession and I was learning things every day and um, I also it became very clear that um, well I, I guess one thing I will notice that I, that I think is sort of interesting because no one ever knew what statistics was and I didn't even want, until I did my internship really know much about statistics very different today where most people have to take statistics and I, I don't know if you've seen this but the number one job in Comcast.com survey or uh, annual thing last last um, last week just was statistics. Which wow, is, is incredible. And in fact, there have even been articles about statistics being the sexiest profession now. But I can <laughs> tell you that when, when when I started in statistics, there was nothing like that out there, and most of us didn't even really know what statisticians uh, did. But I think people have a better a better understanding now. Perfect. So was it the um, internship at the Mayo Clinic that got you interested in research and then subsequently completing your right, PhD? Because, you know, there are lots of different areas that people, and in particular things like um, big data, you hear big data all the time where companies have so much data now, they're collecting data online that, and people go in and, and, and they sort of data mine and try to figure out, okay, what customers like based on what they click on and such. 
Um, yeah, you know, there are lots of um, census. You know, they they hire a lot of statisticians, but but most of most statisticians work in research environments, and in particular, if you're involved in healthcare, you are in a research environment. That's what you're doing as a statistician, and so really everything I've ever worked in, um, other than teaching, has been in a research environment. And you realize I realized very quickly at the at the Mayo Clinic that um, I mean I I learned so much there and got a whole bunch of tools. Um, but if you really want to be employed as a statistician, especially back then, now some undergraduate programs might prepare you a little better <clears throat> for at least sort of doing data analysis. But um, you really have to have a graduate degree. And so, that you know, and in, almost immediately my mentors <laughs> that, that I worked with started you know, pushing me toward looking at different programs that they were familiar with, and and that's how I ended up at at Iowa State University, which at the time was one of the top. I think it's still pretty high, but one of the top statistics programs in the country, and 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 it was a great two years. I mean, really, all of all of graduate school in a master's program is is really foundational, and so it's not very different if you do statistics or biostatistics. Um, you, you get that same foundation, but I didn't stay there because I really, if I was going to do the PhD, and I wanted some option of teaching. It, you can really a lot of master's level statisticians go out into the field and do wonderful, but you can't really teach beyond the community college. And I wanted some the option at least of, of teaching, so I went to the University of Iowa Public School of Public Health or College of Public Health and did my PhD there in biostatistics. And that was just, for me, a, the best the best move because all of my coursework um, was directed at, at, at you know, really healthcare-related research. And uh, it also gave me a broad understanding of epidemiology and, and um, that, that fits in really importantly with, with biostatistics. So that's, that's um, you know, and I've only been involved in research environments. Fantastic. So how did you get from there to being involved in the chiropractic profession? Well, I, I would have never imagined that that would have happened. I did not, I did not know when I was um, finishing my PhD, I had not met a chiropractor. I didn't know what chiropractic was or anything about it. But um, that is, you know, I was finishing the summer, the, the spring, I guess, of 1995. And um, really was looking to stay in the area for personal reasons, um, at least initially. And so I saw a job ad for the position at the Palmer Center for Chiropractic Research. I don't even think, actually, it was probably Palmer College of Chiropractic. And, and um, you know, I asked my mentors about what they thought because certainly we didn't know of any research in chiropractic. And, <clears throat> and they sort of um, said, well, you know, go ahead and apply and, and, and see what's there. And, and so there really was, you know, there were just a handful of faculty. Cheryl Hawk was here. She was an early colleague of mine. Um, Bill Meeker was the director. So he came on the same time that I did into to the Davenport campus. Um, uh, our, our, the person who's our chancellor now actually was a junior faculty member um, in research at that time, um, Dr. Denny Marchiori. And, and so, you know, they were... I mean, nobody, I, I think I'm still the only statistician on the faculty and certainly in any kind of leadership position at a chiropractic college in the United States. It's sort of amazing that they had that foresight that it would be good to bring a statistician on board. And 
I was I was a little skeptical. <laughs> there hadn't been much research, and I, I didn't I didn't know. But you know, my my mentor said, you know, after your PhD, you, you kind of have a free year. You know, so if it if it's not looking good after a year, um, get out. But you know, you might have the opportunity to build things the right way if you're you know on the ground floor, and so. I sort of anticipated probably looking for another position a year later, but here I am, like I think it's about 22, 22 years later, and I, I'm, <laughs> still, I'm still at the center, so it has gone well. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for being there, and thanks for all of your amazing contributions. Um, what's a typical day in your life like? Well, so, I, I you know, for six years now, I've, I've also been... Um, excuse me, the, the director of research here, which is really an administrative, you know, an administrative piece. And I won't talk about that at all because, you know, any of us that do any administration know that that's sort of the same thing all over the place. But but most of my day, um, well, it's it's varied, but most of, most of the day I'm doing something related to our research projects. And you know, the life of a research project is really long, especially the clinical research. I have, I have supported the basic science research program here, the biomechanics um, sort of preclinical um, research program. And in particular, what I've really, um, you know, helped grow and, and have been very involved with is all the clinical, all the clinical research, in particular our, our clinical trials. And um, I think you mentioned in, in your introduction that, that I, I founded and um, continue to direct the Office of Data Management Biostatistics, where I where I have um, you know I have data managers, programmers, and and master's level biostatisticians that work for me, varying depending on how many projects we have, and so we we handle all the data for all projects um, in terms of data collection and data cleaning and you know. Um, um, getting the data sets ready for analysis and then analyzing the data. So, but, but you know, really it depends. I, one day I probably, I probably look at a, an average of five to seven aspects of projects every single day, which is one exciting thing about being a statistician is you get really, a, you know, you get a lot of variety in the kinds of things that you're doing, um, which, is, which is very fun. Uh, being a, a good multitasker helps for me <laughs> to be able to keep up with all of this. But so right now we're not writing any grant proposals, um, looking for grant funding. But we just spent all of February and part of March putting in a very big grant. And so during that period of time, I was very concentrated on different aspects of writing that grant as well as many of my colleagues and we're collaborating outside of here, so all the collaborators. And so when we're doing a when we're writing a big grant, that's pretty much all we're doing. But but there's always other you know then, then you know then you get the funding and then you have to get the protocol together and start meeting weekly and then you implement the study and in clinical studies in particular, I mean I can't think of one that has taken less than a year and a half because you know you have to you have to screen participants. Um, for, for eligibility, and then there's typically a treatment period, and then even long-term follow-up, and so that's happening. You know that that just continues to happen, and and I'm always um, 
I'm always working on you know data integrity and keeping making sure and oversight and monitoring of all of all of those data related activities. And then of course the fun part is when you when you you know close a study and you you know you get the data the data sets and you get to start analyzing the data sets and that's where you know I think the the, the ODM has sort of everyone else sort of just waits until we analyze the data and and that's the real fun part and then we work with the the investigators to um, to present the data, and then we decide sort of okay, where's the primary publication going to go, and we start writing the article. So that can be you know five to seven years probably that whole process, and and so for however many projects we're going, I'm I'm doing a piece of that, um, several pieces of different projects, pretty much daily, and and that's I think for me what makes it fun. I also I also work with you know um, with students. We have research fellows here, so I do a lot of mentoring with them and with junior faculty and with with some of our professional staff who um, who are doing small research projects of their own. And, and so mentoring is 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 a really um, for me anyway a really fun part of my day as well. That's really terrific stuff. Uh, and I can attest to the fact that you're a great multitasker seeing you at uh, DC 2017 and uh, <laughs> you were working on some manuscripts at that point and uh, that right, must have been a really right. busy time. Well, it always is because, you know, I mean, stuff doesn't stop just because you go to a conference, right? And right. You get phone calls or you're working on updating something that, that's going to get presented or, you know, it's just, there's always something, but that's but that's all right. You know, I, I do take one vacation a year where I disconnect. <laughs> Good. And I say, you know, <laughs> everyone else is taking care of it. Here's my, you know, my, you know, one person has my emergency contact information, and that's it. Because because you do need you do need a little time off. Um, but I work with a, just a, I mean, you know, a great team of people here, and I think I think that's something that we all really need to remember because you know. You sort of you only see sort of the top people get the accolades, but you cannot, in particular, clinical research, but really any research these days is a team science. And if you don't have a team, that's you know, I come on for the, as a co-investigator or just sort of the you know the the um, the uh, whole kind of project idea and all of that. But then I'm I'm very much um, you know working on the. The, the monitoring the data integrity and doing the data analysis and that's sort of my role but we have you know a, you know we have a clinician and we have um, and we have data, other data related people and we have project managers and we have the 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 PI who you know who manages the whole project as well as our collaborators and and you really need all of that to do good science Absolutely. We're very fortunate to have attracted a lot of very good people here. I have to say that. Yeah, and I was hired a lot of them, so that that that's a good thing too. I was really fortunate to be involved in one of the projects, so I got to see firsthand how everything uh, smoothly worked together. That was that was pretty amazing. Yes, so I had known your name for so long, but I didn't meet. I don't think we'd met in person until DC 2017. So that was really fun. Yeah, that was great. Now, you've been an author on a lot of excellent peer-reviewed publications from some of the best journals in the field. During this interview, I'd like to talk about your experience, um, not only in the chiropractic profession, but explore the statistical issues that 
both scientists and practitioners in particular face when preparing and, and reading research. So let's just go ahead and dive into that. And the first question that I have for you is, what is a statistician and what a statistician is not? I'm, I'm very glad that you that you asked that because, um, you know, when I first was studying statistics and would people would say, oh, what are you studying or what are you, what is your career? And I would say statistician. Now we get this look on a person's face. This is this is a while ago. It doesn't happen very often anymore. But they'd always say, "Oh, I took statistics once. It was the worst class I ever had." Um, which you know that, that's that, you know. Then how do you ha- start having a conversation? I typically would say, "Well, you didn't have me for an instructor," <laughs> you know, because because statistics is one of the funnest things to teach, and in particular if it's just sort of a general statistics class. And you know, there has been a, a you know, I, I hope your 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 listeners. Um, have had better experiences than that because there are, you know, there's been a for at least 15 years, almost 20 years, a really a revolution of change in teaching. But somehow there still seems to be those professors out there that rather than using data and telling stories and and and, and making it really interesting, they put formulas on the board, and that that we just don't need that in this day and age. Um, and that is not what statistics is: formulas and math and such. Um, but as a statistician, I think I have told you this before, is um, my colleagues know that they should never introduce me like this, and they only do if they want to sort of prod me and give me a hard time, is that um, that a statistician is a data cruncher. And that could not be further from the truth. I mean, I really, I really shun at that, that description. And, you know, I would say that maybe, maybe an accountant is a data cruncher, but, um, you know, maybe there are other data crunchers out there, but certainly a, a, a statistician is not a data cruncher. I mean, anyone can, can crunch data these days. You just get on the, get on the Internet or get on a statistical program and put some data in, and, you know, you can do whatever you want. But the statistician is the one that, that, that has the knowledge and, and should really um, be involved in all aspects of, of the research project, we'll talk about that a little more as we as we go. You know, I think in the next couple of questions. But um, what a statistician is not is really important too, because a lot of people think, oh, the statistician does everything related to data. So you know, they're going to collect the data, or they're going to get the data, they're going to clean the data. And if you have a really small shop. Certainly, when I first came here, I did all of those things because we didn't have an office of measurement by statistics yet. We didn't have much research either, so I could, I could actually do it. Um, but you know, you need everybody has their expertise, and the biostatistician, and primarily, I might not have had that expertise except for I worked as a data anal- analyst, uh, data analyst for three years at the Mayo Clinic, and so I did a lot of data cleaning and programming and and putting data sets together and everything. So I did have that skill set. But as soon as I could build my office data management about statistics, I brought other people in and gave them that skill set because you need someone that is completely that that is their that is their um, expertise and 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 luckily my my um, uh, data core manager who's been with me for I think eighteen or nineteen years now um, and you know he came in not really knowing anything but having a huge aptitude and I taught him everything I knew and then. He went and got a master's of uh, in, in IT management, and you know he handles everything data related. I mean, I still work with him very closely, you know, but he's the one that is the expert, and that you really need you need um, 
people who are experts. Statisticians are not necessarily data managers, and a lot of statisticians haven't really ever, you know, if they didn't work like I did before I went to graduate school, they don't even have that skill set. Um, so that's definitely something a statistician is not. And I would like to say that, you know, statisticians aren't the ones, although they, they often are, but what we hate is, is that the, we're the person that, you know, someone knocks on their do on your door at the, like, the ninth hour saying, I have a grant due tomorrow, and can you do a sample size calculation for me? <laughs> and certainly we do sample size calculations, but it should be part of the process and not at the ninth hour. Um, and I've, I've had not many because I've been able to sort of dictate the rules that I work under here and how people can interact with me, but... but um, a lot of statisticians, especially in their, if they're in sort of um, big universities and sort of um, man, you know, um, statistical consulting centers, will tell you that that's you know, 40% of their uh, of of their job, and then and then another 30% is people saying, oh, I you know I collected my data, can you analyze it for me? Well, if the study hasn't been done well, <laughs> and the data hasn't been collected well, or the the right data haven't been collected, you know, statisticians were not magicians. You know, we can't make your study, we can't fix your study if you didn't do it correctly, right? Right. And those are important things for, for people to, to understand. Wow. So uh, let's dive just a little deeper in that, the statistician's role, and, and maybe we can start out with, uh, so is it a good idea then to get advice from the biostatistician before the research uh, begins and and. If not, then how how should a biostatistician uh, come on to the project? Right. Well, one thing that we're fortunate here because we have at least one biostatistician always, you know, um, as part of the, the the research center is that you know we should be involved from day one, <laughs> um, and 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 that is essentially what happens most of the time at the center, the college. You know, I do some consulting for the college if I have time or if one of my um, ODM members has time, but we really don't, you know, we're pretty small and we do a lot of studies here, so we don't have a lot of time to just um, to support other projects. Um, so, you know, basically um, what I like best is if, the PI or the investigative team as they're thinking about what are their research questions going to be, um, that they stop in and just chat with me a little bit. Um, especially now, I have a much better knowledge about the kind of research we're doing. So I have a lot of insight. But even when I was first starting here, you know, that's that was, and I, you know, so fortunate to have Cheryl Hawk, whom was doing the majority of the research that I was involved with. I kind of built a lot of the ODM services around her projects. And, you know, I was involved from day one with her, and that, that was great. Um, and as, as more faculty came on, um, you know, at least once I would have one of them come in at the, at the ninth hour and say, I have a grant due tomorrow, you know, can, we, can you do a sample size paragraph for me? And, and very quickly we would learn <laughs> that that doesn't work very well. Um, we try to get them out the door. But the next time they would come and talk to me, and especially one colleague that I worked with very closely, I mean, he didn't. He talked to me before he talked to anybody else, and would would start talking about what his specific aims were, and and, and and you know the research objective, what the research questions should be. And really, when I'm there, is you know I I trust the scientists that they know what's important, 
but I can help them say, how can we then turn that into something, a hypothesis that we can test statistically, right? How can we, what, what do we need to measure and how can we compare or um, um, groups or whatever the study design might be and, and quantify and what kind of methods, statistical methods might be um, most relevant. And so, you know, and then as I was talking a little bit earlier about my typical day, well, the statistician is involved in all aspects. The basic science, not as much with the data collection, although we have to, you know, create the data sets. Anything clinical, really you can't, you, you know, to have good research, the clinical team cannot be looking at the data they're collecting. And we often now do a lot of um, patient self-report via web form. So, you know, it's coming directly to the ODM team and, and they're the ones cleaning it and querying if there's issues, et cetera. And you really can't be, you know, you might bias your, your outcome if you're looking at the data and doing sort of interim looks. I don't even, you know, I'm blinded to most everything as well. Um, so it's really just the, 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 you know, the data managers and the programmers that are um, uh, dealing with it at that time. And then, but in the clinical studies, as I mentioned Previously, you know, we monitor, we have weekly meetings on every clinical project we have with the whole investigative team, um, our collaborators off-site and people here, the key people, and we, we look at, we monitor everything about data collection and about accrual and all of that and, and, and make changes. And then, of course, when the study closes down, um, you know, I make requests for the data sets that we need for, you know, usually there's multiple papers and make sure that that data is, is, uh, has high integrity. And then uh, we've been writing the data analysis plan. Usually the uh, uh, master's level biostatistician and I have put together a very careful, much longer than you would see in, in, in the actual resulting paper about how we're going to analyze the data, what happens if, if our assumptions are not correct, et cetera. And then I'm this. Some biostatisticians might not be as involved. It depends that, you know, you usually have this agreement before you get involved with the study. And a lot of chiropractic colleges end up contracting out to a local, um, either a local statistical consulting center or a university. They'll contract out some of the, some of, um, the statistics. And the, the best of them get them involved all the way through here. And, and you make an agreement whether you're going to be a co-author or not. And, and, I, I'm always a co-author on anything that I that I've been involved with as a co-investigator, and so I I certainly write all of the statistical methods. I um, help write all of the methods because I've done a lot of that, and I usually write. Um, and this is with my teams here. This might not be everywhere, but I typically write the first draft of the results from a statistical perspective, and then we get everybody involved to make sure that it's you know, um, reading the way it should. And so um, that's sort of, in my mind, that is, that, that, that is perfection because then I've had a voice in everything and I don't get those data sets. I still do. I still get some of those that <laughs> didn't, didn't come to me early enough, but not many of them where you're, you know, I have to tell a, an investigator that, you know, I'm not sure how we can answer this question with what you have here. And, you know, because... I can do some methods here, but I don't think we're going to be able to answer your question. And that's what we, you know, by having a, 
a statistician or a biostatistician involved all the way through, you know, you you can analyze and answer your important questions. You know, it's a big financial um, uh, to you know finances both internal because we have support from our college as well as mo our grants, it's the taxpayers. So if we we have uh, United States citizens listening here, most of our funding comes from the U.S. government, and so we owe it to taxpayers and we owe it to the college to be the most efficient and to be asking, you know, to be collecting the data such that we can answer those questions and and make the most of that data, right? And I think a biostatistician is the one person <laughs> on a team that can really try try to make sure that happens. Yeah, that's but really... It takes the whole team. That's really right? terrific. It takes the whole team. Yeah. Very methodical, very clean. Uh, that's just uh, amazing. And, you know, Things will always come up. I got to tell you, you, you think you've, you've, you've dotted every I, you've crossed every T, and then something will come up, and you're like, how did that get by us? But because we control every little aspect, we can usually figure it out, get it taken care of, um, you know, make sure that there was no bias introduced to the, to the data or whatever the, the case may be. I mean, I'm always amazed that no matter how good you are, something comes up. But the closer you are to it and, and, and the, the better methods you have, that doesn't get in the way of your data integrity in the end. Let's hope anyway. It doesn't. It, it hasn't yet here. Sure. That, that's, yeah, that's, that's great. Well, before we get into uh, many of the statistical terms that chiropractors and other, others might want to know about, um, can we talk about the difference between descriptive and inferential statistics? Yeah, that's a that's a great place to start because you know we hear these terms batted around and and you know maybe we think we know what it is but we're not sure. So in the majority, certainly all of the research I'm involved in, the majority of research you know clinically related, which is really where I'm focusing today, um, we you know we want to we want to make conclusions or know something about a, a target population in general. And usually, for us, it's a patient population, right? And so we take a sample. All of our studies involve samples from that target population. We hope, you know, there are a lot of things that are don't have anything to do with statistics, but I bring them up all the time is, you know, all the things you want to do about choosing your sample so that it, it, it's representative of your, of your population. And so... That's really where descriptive and inferential um, are kind of derive from. Descriptive statistics are, are just describing and summarizing the data from your sample. And so for, for a clinical research study, we'll always have that table one that will have all of the sort of demographic and clinical information about the patients, which is really important for clinicians reading the literature because you need to say, are these patients like mine? Is this even relevant to me in my practice, right? And that's usually table one in a, in a research article. And those are just descriptive statistics. They're typically descriptive statistics to let you know what do these patients look like. Um, inferential statistics is the step where we say, okay, we have this sample data, but we really want to make inference about our target population. 
because, you know, it, there are things like case studies and case series that are purely descriptive. And you can say, this is what happened with this patient under this particular care, and that might be important to generate future research questions, but you're not going to ever be able to make inference about a target population from that, right? But when we do um, studies where we have samples of participants that we, um, that we enroll in our studies, and usually, you know, most of the studies we do here in clinical, stu in clinical um, research are, are, um, are clinical trials where we're actually bringing patients in, often with neck, uh, neck or back pain, um, pain-related conditions are, are mostly what we work with in the clinical studies, although our basic science and biomechanics look at a lot of mechanistic studies. How does this work? Um, we are really looking at outcomes typically in the clinical studies, and I think that that's primarily what um, what what chiropractors in in, in the field are, are are going to read too, at least in terms of how it might impact their practice. And so that's where you really need to look at the inferential statistics. That's where we see things. We'll be talking a little bit later. You will see p values or confidence intervals, and that is where we actually test the statistical hypotheses that we make, and then we try to, um, you know, we use that then to say, okay, this is what, we have our sample information, this is what we can say about what that means in the bigger target population. So descriptive is just describing your samples, inferential is trying to really answer the research question you have about the patient population in general. Excellent. Excellent. Well, let's get into the top nine or 10 statistical terms, depending on how we count these, uh, for folks that want to know more about statistics. So uh, can we begin with effect size? Right. Effect size, I think that uh, all of us clinicians, uh, maybe even, even um, more than anybody, you know, the first thing we're going to look at when we look at a paper is, you know, well... How much did those you know those patients in that study? How much did they change on maybe you know the kinds of outcome measures we use in our pain-related studies would be um, on the pain intensity, the daily pain intensity, or the the worst pain intensity over the last 24 hours, or um, um, on functional disabilities such as using a Roland Morris or an Oswestry coins or a neck disability index. You know how much. How much did they improve? You're going to anticipate that they're improving if they're coming in with a condition you're trying to treat. And that is essentially what the effect size is. In addition to what did they look like relative to the other group? If you have a, a, a simple study where you have um, one set of, of, of patients in your study that are undergoing just usual medical care for their, their, their pain-related issue, and then you have another group that had usual medical care, but they also get to have chiropractic care. And that is actually a design we're just writing a, a paper on right now. So it's one I'm super familiar with at the moment. And, and so you, in addition to saying how much did, did, did um, the, the patients improve in each group, you also want to say, well, how much, how much difference were there in the improvements between groups? And when you just sort of, you know, it might be mean, Mean, means or percent of responders, you know, those could be the kind of measures you're using. And you're just looking at the general measure and the effect size is just a quick look at, at whether they're different or not. 
or just how, how much they've changed. And, and the key thing here is that, you know, when we, when we collect data on samples, there's all kinds of inherent variability. Not every, you don't get the same response from everyone, or we wouldn't need statistics or statisticians, right? And so as we'll move through some of these questions you have for me, we'll start talking about, well, how do we account for the variability? How do we account for the sample size? But effect size is just that straight first look. How good did they do, and how, how good did they do relative to, to the control group? Okay, perfect. Well, let's talk about uh, some other statistics uh, clinically applied, and that maybe the first couple are fairly straightforward, but these would be means and standard deviations. Right, and and I, you know, um, in a lot of clinical studies, we'll talk about a couple other types of 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 um, measures, clinical statistics, and I should I should mention here, I should have mentioned this before, but I didn't. So statistics, sometimes there's, there's misnomers because there's several different terms. So there is statistics in the bigger sense, which is the science of learning from data. That's, I'm a statistician, I'm a scientist, and, and my field learns from data. Then there's the term statistics that is very specific, and it's what we call those summer, the summaries that we do from those sample, those sample, um, and and in the inferential, but from from our samples, and so means and standard deviations are things that we all see all over the place, and in particular, a lot of chiropractic studies were looking at things like pain intensity, quality, bothersomeness, um, functional disabilities, um, quality of life. We're looking at measures that. We do get means and standard deviations for, and so the mean. I think everyone has, everybody's has a really good idea what a mean is. It's just an arithmetic average. You know, you've got five people in the room. You ask them their age. You add up the ages and you divide by five. That is all a mean is. Um, when we call it a mean instead of an average, is because it's a statistic. It's a statistic that we're going to use to analyze our data. First, we describe it. Um, and then we'll use it to analyze the data and do inferential statistics. Now, standard deviations, I'm guessing, are are less um, are less well known. And whenever when, when whenever we're describing samples and then making inference about populations in those descriptive and inferential statistical states, we've got to also have a measure of variability. How much spread is there in the data? And a standard deviation, whenever you're reporting a mean, you should also see a standard deviation because the mean's just sort of the effect size. It's just that center. But you might have data spread a whole lot, or you might have data that's very, very tight and very close to the mean, and that's important if you're going to try to find if there's signal in the noise. I think a lot of people think of statistics like that. Um, you know, is it just all noise? and there's just a center, or is there really a signal, and it's not all noise? And so the standard deviation, I like to think it's not exactly this, but it, this is, um, it's pretty close to this, and it's, it's the average distance of the data from the mean. So it, it, if it's a real small, and it all, always will depend on the units of measurement, of course, but if it's very small relative to the mean, then it means the data are pretty tight and you don't have a lot of variability. If it's really big 
relative to the mean, then it means you're spread all over the place. And that will be very important when we get to, to thinking about inferential statistics. That's great. Yeah, I like thinking about it, <clears throat> about spread as well. I think that's a good way to describe it. How about risk ratios, odds ratios, and relative risk? Yeah, those are those are, are great. Risk differences is another one that we should add in there. And so risk in general is is one type of clinical effect. It is it is typically described as the, the chance of having a successful outcome. Um, I think that that's the, the most generic and, and, and um, reasonable way to think about risk. When you have study designs, and, and I will say that you will see more and more of this in the chiropractic literature. In a lot of the clinical literature, they really use um, risk to compare um, between groups, whether it would be depending on the, the, the type of study it is, but um, you know, might might dictate it a little bit, but but that is where you'll see a lot of it. Um, we've had a lot smaller studies. These are usually bigger studies, but a lot of things. If you're looking at risks of drugs in particular, um, or or outcomes from different drug treatments, you will see these risks in the results section uh, of the clinical article. And you're seeing many more uh, chiropractic clinical studies that also have these. So if you're talking about risk, you're talking about um, within each group, just like we talked about means, within each group um, calculating the risk or maybe risk isn't the best word there, but, you know, sort of the chance of a successful outcome. And then you have to say, well, how do I compare between groups? Again, if you have one group that has usual medical care alone for their condition, and the other group has usual medical care, but they also have chiropractic care during their course of treatment. And you really want to compare <clears throat> um, the, the outcome. You know, did, did the group with chiropractic care do better and how much better than the group that had just usual medical care? <clears throat> That's usually what our, our, our research question of interest is, right? And so we have several different, we have odds ratios, we have relative risks, and we have risk differences. So start with the odds ratio or a risk ratio, odds ratios and relative risk. <clears throat> risk ratios is just a ratio of risk. And sometimes we have relative risk, sometimes we have odds ratios, and it depends on the study design. If we have a study design that's sort of cross-sectional in nature, meaning we take data at one time, so we don't necessarily know the cause and effect, but we take data at one time, and we want to know if there's association between um, a, uh, um, a maybe a risk factor that we look back on, maybe age or sex or some other kind of risk factor and the outcome of interest, where the outcome is either um, good or not, then we can uh, a, a, we would do an odds ratio as the estimate of, a, of the risk because we, we might, and we would look at that odds ratio, it would be the ratio of odds, the odds of having a good success in one level of the, the variable we're interested in, perhaps it's, it's age and it's, it's young and old, and we'll estimate the risk or the odds 
of having a good outcome in the young group, and we'll, we'll estimate the odds of having a good outcome in the older group, and then we'll make a ratio of that. And if the ratio is one, it means that, that the risk is the same. They, the, the, the chance of getting a successful outcome is the same. If it's bigger than one, then it means the top group, the group that is in the, in the numerator or the top of the, the ratio, has a better chance of a successful outcome. If it's less than one, then it means the group on the bottom and the denominator or, you know, in the bottom of the ratio has a better outcome. Relative risks are, we interpret those the same way, but relative risks mean that we're looking forward. And so in clinical trials, you often see relative risks used because you, um, similar to um, other study designs that I've mentioned here, you have a group that you assign to usual medical care alone. You have a group that you, or you have participants or patients that you um, assign to usual medical care plus chiropractic care. You get their outcome and you decide if it's a, a response, a good response to treatment or not. And then you make a, a, a relative risk. You put the... Um, Typically, we put the group that, that we're really interested in on top, so we would put the, the, um, the risk going forward of having or the chance of having a good outcome in, in the group that has chiropractic care added to their, to their usual medical care. And on the bottom, we would put usual medical care alone. And so if it was one, it would mean that they had exactly the same outcome. If it's greater than one, then that's in favor of the chiropractic plus, or the, the usual medical care plus chiropractic care. If it's less than one, then it's in favor of usual medical care alone. Um, we also see risk differences also, which is just taking, and, and this is with means too. If you are looking at differences rel relative, um, or rather than risk ratios, Zero is what means there's no effect. So if you have a risk in usual medical care and you have an estimate of a risk in usual medical care, you have an estimate of a risk in, in usual medical care plus a chiropractic care component. And if that, the difference of their outcomes, whether um, of those risks of the outcomes or the chance of successful outcome is zero, then there's no difference. And that's a measure you'll see often. Same with means. I didn't mention this earlier, but when you're looking at means and you want to know is the mean pain intensity, um, improvement in pain intensity, here it is in, in the usual medical care group. Here's in the usual medical care plus chiropractic care group. And if those differences are zero, then they're the same. So. Great. Risk ratios and then differences, you know, any kind, anytime you're analyzing a ratio, you're trying to look at around one because one would mean no difference. And if you're looking at it um, with respect to um, means or any kind of differences, mean differences or risk differences, you're looking at around zero. And that's an important thing, I think, for always for readers of articles to, to remember. The measures I've talked about so far are actually all effect sizes. I haven't said anything about variability, right? Right. I'm talking about clinical statistics, and these would be the effect sizes. 
Yeah, this is really great discussion. Uh, and I appreciate you using chiropractic examples too. Um, how about number needed to treat? This is something that I've seen a lot more recently in the last five to 10 years, especially. Yeah, you're right. It, it didn't really, you didn't see it in literature at all before then. I was actually looking at, um, was actually looking at an article from one of our colleagues, very, very, two colleagues in, in, in chiropractic research, Mitch Haas and Mike Schneider. This was a 2010 in chiropractic and osteopathy paper illustrating risk difference and number needed to treat from a randomized controlled trial spinal manipulation for cervicogenic headache. And they have a really nice, I can send you that, that link if you want, but they have yeah, a really nice great. description. They sort of just illustrate how, how you calculate it and what it means and, um, for number needed to treat. And, and it's completely, it's absolutely related to the risk difference. It's another way of talking about the risk difference. And so they would show you how to calculate it. I'll just tell you what it is. What it is, and this, we don't see this nearly as much in chiropractic and, and maybe for good reasons, but you see it a lot in drug studies. Um, and it, it, what, what the NNT or the number needed to treat is, is the number of patients that you, you would need to treat to get one successful outcome whatever that study design is. So if you're talking about pain intensity, you know, the number of patients you would need to treat to get one responder to your chiropractic care. Um, so, and again, it's completely, it's, it's a different way of, of talking about a, a risk difference. And so if you're, if you're, um, if your NNT is two, well, that's pretty good. You only have to treat two patients to get one that has a success, a success, right? Right. But if your if your NNT is a hundred, then you need to treat a hundred patients to get one success. Now, it's going to depend a lot on what kind of intervention you're talking about, right? Yep. Because you know. Maybe it's a drug trial and, drug, and a, you know, it's, a, it's a, um, a condition where death is imminent um, and the drug's really expensive. So there's all kinds of things that go into that, you know, how you interpret that number. Um, I think what I've been seeing more often now, really, as we look at safety of interventions, including chiropractic, there's several investigators um, looking at... at, at safety-related things to, to spinal manipulation and adjustments for patients. And so you, similar to the number needed to treat, you can also calculate the number needed to harm. And that's a good way to talk about safety because if you are, if you are, in, if, you, if you're having some, whatever your harm is, it might be just a, a um, it might be a bad, I mean, we certainly have some in the media in chiropractic right now, you know, if it's a, uh, dissection, um, and that's the harm, and you'd want that number to be really, really large. It is pretty large from the, the research I've seen, but you would want it to be very large. Um, if you have a real small number needed to, to um, harm, then that says, you know, you're harming one out of two or one out of three participants, that probably, or one in every three participants, that would not be very good. So, 
Um, you know, the smaller the number needed to treat, probably in general, the better. The bigger the number needed to harm is is better. And if you really, if your readers or your listeners really want to to kind of dig into this a little more, this paper I just mentioned, uh, Mitch Hassan and Mike Schneider, it's just, it illustrates all of these things I've just talked about really well. And they also talk about risk differences and odds ratios in here. So, you know, and they're doing it in illustrative. They're using one of, one of Mitch Haas's, um, uh data sets from one of his clinical trials on cervicogenic headache. But they're, but they're actually stepping through and showing you how to think about and how these, are, um, these numbers are, are are put there, so it's a, it's a great paper to have as a you know something to, um, I guess, read on a Sunday morning with your cup of coffee if you're interested in learning more about these measures. Yeah, that's terrific. I'll I'll go ahead and uh, post that to the website for sure. Yeah, it sounds right, terrific. Right. I can't wait to read it too. Can we talk about clinical significance? Yes, absolutely. Because you know, clinical significance is awfully important, right? If you're not thinking about clinical significance, and I actually, I actually like to um, call this clinical importance um, rather than clinical significance. We see significant, that term in general is really jargon. <laughs> it, is, it, it is jargon, um, but it's pervasive in, in the... It is pervasive in the um, in the work that we that we do, or the the, the articles that we read, or the you know, and and so we kind of have to, to get comfortable with it. But I try to I try to you know because we're going to talk about statistical significance, where significance is the word that is used. It still is sort of jargonized, but clinical importance is what clinical significance is, and. and this is determined not by the statistician. And, you know, this is a conversation I have with my students and my colleagues on a regular basis because, you know, they'll come talking to me and I'll say, you know, I can't really help you with clinical significance because that's how much change, depending on your study design again. But if we're doing a randomized controlled trial, first you need to think how much change in whatever your outcome measure is important to the patient clinically. So if, it, if, it's, if it's, you know, pain intensity on a 0 to 10 scale, which we often use those numerical rating scales, then, you know, how much pain is important? And then the second question is, you know, how much more relief from pain would you need in, in the experimental group or the group that has usual medical care plus chiropractic care relative to your control usual medical care group. Both of those have to be answered in clinical significance. So a lot of the outcome measures that we use in our pain-related research um, are, are, you know, pain intensity, pain disability. Um, And, you know, we usually try to kind of um, hit these for our primary outcomes. We always need to ask this question, but we should be asking about all of our outcome measures. And so I can't help you with that except for I can go to the literature and you will see a whole host of literature on both important clinical change, meaning, you know, what do you want to see in your individual patient to say, okay, in in a given measure in those those pain and disability type measures, especially in in chronic pain patients, you know, how how much of a change do you want to see in that as well as 
the um, the important clinical difference between groups, um, or the important you know how much more do you need to see in one group than the other to to say that's that's clinically important. That's that's important. We need to start making some of these changes in our practice. Um, so clinical importance is always always important. Uh, important, uh, you know, is 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 needs to be considered in every clinical study, and usually you'll go to the literature. Now, it may be an outcome measure that doesn't have a lot of literature on it, and then, you know, in that first pilot study that you might be reading about that someone used, they would be using their clinical knowledge to try to benchmark that and say, well, what do we think based on our observations and why we're using this measure, what do we think would be clinically important? But then usually, uh, um, usually literature will come out af you know as as that as that measure gets used in the in the um, literature more or in, in clinical studies more. Does that make does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really like uh, you talking about measures that haven't gone through the scrutiny just to know um, you know how it might be calculated or or determined. Uh, it always seemed a little bit of a a mystery to me until probably a few years ago, but uh, I've seen some right. interesting studies right. where they, you know, they would maybe take a measure and then if it's something that the patient is perceptible with, um, like pain or something like that, maybe they ask him a questionnaire, um, you know, would you rate this as being improved uh, or something like that? And so they could right. correlate those. Right. And actually, we use those. Kind of, they're often called global measures of, of, of perceived measure of change. Yes, exactly. Starting. And, yes. And we use those a lot too. And, you know, there there is not as much literature out on what would be important, but it's certainly, um, you know, we often use new diagrams of that because it really kind of gets the point across if you have big differences in your groups. For sure. Well, let's talk about statistical significance. This is the significance that right. most people talk this about. This is where you, you're going to want to talk to your statistician. This is definitely where you, you know you can you can get help from a statistician, or that that hopefully the statistician has helped write the article so that it's that it's clear. But you know, um, sometimes you have to use pretty um, pretty sophisticated statistical methods. And, and I, you know, we were just working on an article um, or a manuscript revision right now where. It's a really hard measure that we that we used on something, and trying to make that easily interpretable by the reader is always what we're trying to do as good as good scientific writers. But it's not always easy. <laughs> I tell you, I struggled with that all week. So statistical significance is, is typically significance is the word used. I will say that the the the, the, um, the scientific community is very comfortable with that word significance. The statistics community. Ah, you know, we'd like to find some better words because <laughs> yeah. bantered around. And I will say that this isn't always going to be in 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 research articles. But you would, if you see the word significance in the results section, it should be talking about statistic or the, the statistical significance. If you see the word significance in the um in the uh. Yeah you know, the last section of the discussion or conclusion section, usually it's clinical significance. Or someone would, you would hope they would say we're talking about statistical significance because you, you have to consider both of them. 
So statistical significance is what we do to try to make inference about that target population with our sample data. And so this will take into account not just the effect size, but it will take into account the standard deviation or whatever other measure of variability. Every, every one of these clinical statistics I've talked about has a measure of variability, as well as the sample size. Okay, and so statistical significance asks the question, um, if we were to do this study over and over and over and over again, am I likely to get the same result, or is this just, just sort of a fluke? And so statistical significance, you would typically, um, well, we'll talk about p-values in a little bit. You will see confidence intervals and p-values are going to be the things that are reported it, relative to statistical significance. And it's all, you, if, you, if there is inferential statistics being done, then you're going to see terms about significance or statistical significance, and if that's in the results section, you usually assume that that's statistical significance that it's talking about. Now, it's really important to know that you have to take into account both clinical significance and statistical significance when you're weighing the validity of an article or whether that article is going to have any impact on your, your practice or if you're just going to sort of dismiss it as not. So we have four situations, right? We have, a, we have situations where, which most people hope for, that you have a finding, you're between group difference or you're, be, you're, you're between, between group risk or your risk ratios are between your control group like the usual medical care and your other and your group of real interest like usual medical care plus chiropractic care. That you're hoping that um, that you have both clinical your your findings have both clinical significance and that in that to get clinical significance again we look at the effect size and statistical significance that takes into account the variability in the measure and the sample size. That is what most people are hoping for, right, when they do a study. Mm -hmm. um, you don't know until you analyze the data, right? You do a really sound study and you analyze the data and you have to go in understanding you're in equipoise, meaning you don't really know what the answer is. And, of course, you wouldn't be doing the study if you weren't really interested and pretty sure. You know, most people are pretty like, I know that chiropractic care, you know, is going to really aid those patients, but... You don't know until you see the data. And so that's what most people hope. But we have three other scenarios. There is a scenario where neither clinical significance nor statistical significance, you, you don't have either of those. You don't have clinical important um, effect sizes and, and your, and your, and your um, comparison of groups on whatever clinical um, statistics you're, you're using are not they're definitely not statistically significant. We'll talk a little bit about more, more about exactly what that means in a moment. Well, that's a situation where, you know what, it's not a negative study. I always hear people saying it's a negative study. All studies give information and, and help us make decisions about patient care. It might be negative to you because you really thought that that group with chiropractic care was going to do measurably better on your on your clinical statistics um, and, and clinical importance. 
Um, you just that's been your observation and practice, and you're just sure that that's going to come out. But you know what? If you've done a sound study and, and you don't have clinical important effects and you don't have statistical significance, then that needs to be reported. We can't have publication bias where people say, oh, well, I'm not going to publish that because I don't want that to be out there. It needs to be out there. That's why you do the study, right? Right. And so maybe whatever treatment you're doing, hyperactive care is a big box, right? Maybe whatever treatment that you're necessarily doing, but you need to know, you know, maybe that's not the most effective. Um, maybe there are other tools I have in my toolbox as a chiropractor, you know, maybe maybe it's exercise, maybe it's um, recommendations and how you sit or, you know, just all of those different things that you have. Um, or maybe maybe with that kind of patient, whatever it might be, that that's not the best approach. And those need to be in the literature as well. Um, so, you know, even though you might be said personally if you're the PI of the study, it is important to publish that. And as a reader, you have to say, well, you ask the same question as you do if, if it was what we call a, you know, what I don't call, but what I hear people call a positive result where you have both clinical and statistical significance. And you just have to look as a good study, you know, assess the validity of the study, always sort of using our evidence-based clinical practice terminology. Is it a, a valid study? Did they do the things they were supposed to do? And if so, then the results are sound, right? Um, there are two other situations that I think we need to talk about that could happen. And I would say early, not nearly as much now, but when I first came into the profession and I looked at, you know, most of those studies were in JMPT, right? Right. And they were little, little tiny um, clinical trials <laughs> and maybe weren't due to, I mean, it was, it was a, you know, research was, pretty young in chiropractic and there wasn't a lot of support and so there were a lot of small clinical trials and 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 this is what a lot of them said we have clinically important changes but they're not statistically significant well what that typically means is they probably it could mean that they didn't have a big enough sample size could mean that the study was you know, not done very carefully so they had a lot of noise they you know, a lot of variability that they could have potentially eliminated by a better design or better conduct of the study. Or it could just mean that, well, if we did this right and we did a bigger study, we wouldn't find clinical importance or statistical significance. And you can't, you don't know. But I, I saw in a lot of the early literature, well, we have a clinically important finding. Even though it's not statistically significant, that's because we have too small a sample size. So we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to call this a, you know, a, a win. Well, that's not really right. It might, it might beg that we need to now try to do a large study with a big enough sample size to see if we still see this this clinical importance and that it is statistical significance because you don't know. Um, the other situation that we don't see nearly as much in chiropractic, but you definitely see this, and this is where you have very, very large sample sizes. So often if you see, and we do see some of this work in chiropractic, you'll see um, um, some of the national databases will be looking at specific chiropractic questions, and there'll be thousands and thousands, maybe more than that, patients. Or, or participants in the in the study, or respondents, if it's a survey, and almost anything looks statistically significant because you have such a huge sample size. 
but the clinical relevance or the or 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 the policy relevance or whatever um, clinical importance is is minimal, and so you'll see statistical significance, but does it really mean anything? And so you, typically, you don't have to ask that question unless it's a really large sample size, and then you have to scrutinize and make sure. Well, okay, yeah, everything was statistically significant, but so what? Right? Right. They're really small differences in groups or in changes or whatever it is that you're measuring. Well, great discussion. How about, um, let's follow up on the statistical significance and talk about p-values and confidence intervals. Okay. So, I think, let's see. Um, I think I will start with p-values because I prefer confidence intervals. So, I will, I will talk about p-values and then how we can back into confidence intervals in particular in clinical research. So, so a p-value, often people describe a p-value as, as the chance, I had some of my notes from my basic classes here just so I don't, you know, confuse anyone. They'll, they'll just say that it's, 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 the, um, it's the chance that, um, or, or the um, probability that what you see is by chance. And that's really that's really not right. I know it's a simple a simple explanation, but what it really is it's a it's a con- conditional chance. And what it says is that if the null hypothesis is true, and and so for the the kinds of measures we were talking about earlier, it's if the two means are the same in the two groups, or if the odds ratios are are one, or the rel- you know any of the risk ratios are one, or any of the differences are zero. That's going to be your null hypothesis, and then you're trying to disprove the null hypothesis in classical statistics. So if that's really true, then what is the chance that I get the value that I observe or larger? Okay, so that's what a, that's what a p-value is. And so you're looking for very small p-values. You want that chance to be very small. If you're going to say, yeah, I think that this is a real effect and not sort of just due to chance. And in the, in the literature, you will typically see people use values, p-values, they'll set them at 0.05. Now, let me tell you, 0.05 is not a magical number. That means you have a 5% chance that, that, that what you observed um, may you have a five percent chance that 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 what you observed in your sample, if the null hypothesis is true, is really is really not the case. So you might make a decision error. Okay, so p values are about making decision errors, and you want that chance to be as small as possible. But 0.05 is not magic, so. You, in every paper you look at, you do not want to people saying significant, not significant at a 0.05 level. You want them to give you the p-value. And let me also mention that p-values aren't necessarily too precise. So if you see p-values that have like 0.00000001, that is not more significant, statistically significant than less than 0.001 in which it should be reported. I think people, we often see that, in particular in talks. I think by the time it gets to a paper, hopefully it's been 
it's had peer review to the point where you're reporting them appropriately. So you want to see them give you the p-value. And, and let me say that 0.04 is not different from 0.06, really. One, you call a statistical significance. One, you don't. But by, by actually giving, if you're, if you're testing at an 0.05 level, which is typically what we see, if, um, if the reader gets to see the p-value and kind of read the study, they can make their own decision. Now, the, the, the researcher, if they say, I'm testing at an 0.05 level of significance, and I got a p-value of 0.04, so I'm going to say that's a statistically significant result, hopefully it's clinically important, too, because otherwise we don't care, right? Um, then that's okay, but it, it allows the reader to make their own decision. Um, if we have a p-value of 0.45, let's say, that doesn't appear to be very likely that there's a difference between groups or that, that, that the risks are different depending on what it is that we're measuring um, for our outcomes. And then you can kind of hang it up and say, yeah, that's probably not very likely. But all of those p-values like from 0.01 to 0.10 or 0.20 well, it kind of depends on the study and other things. And, and so you definitely want to see, hopefully you're not reading many papers anymore because if you're reading psychology and sociology, it's still prevalent that they'll just do a little star and say P less than 0.05, you know. Um, but that's not, that's not best practices and that's not going to be helpful for you as a clinician out there. Um, to be able to really make your own determination of whether that's an important effect or not. Now, we could also talk about, um, and well, there are things like alphas and, and such like that. I, I mean, I don't even talk about those because unless you're, you're really a statistician or really doing some of the heavy-duty statistical lifting, you don't need to really know those terms. Usually you'll see... Um, in the method, statistical methods section, you'll see something about we are going, and this should always be said a priori, meaning before you ever analyze the data, let alone write the papers. This should be stated in your research protocol. If you are writing a grant proposal, it should be stated there that we are going to set our level of significance at P point equals or, or at 0.05 or 0.01 or 0.1, and then there's, there could, if it's not 0.05, I mean, I would say you need to justify it because people are going to expect 0.05. So if, let's say you have, like we have a paper right now that our study where we had two primary outcome measures. One was pain disability and one was um, pain, dis, uh, uh, pain intensity. And, and we wanted to make sure that we made a call on statistical significance that would that would be um, um, reasonable, and so we said, well, you know, we have two. Because if you test and test and test and test and test every variable you have, you're probably going to find by chance that one is significant at the 0.5 level or whatever level you set. But we actually tested at 0.05 divided by two at 0.025, so we had to have a little bit more evidence to say it was statistically significant. And we put that in the grant proposal and we put that in the paper. And, you know, that you always report that. Um, and that will be in the statistical methods section. And then you would expect that 
when people are reporting their results, they give you the p-values, and then you can say, wait a minute, they said that was significant, but they're not using the level of significance they stated in their method. I hope, at least in the top-tier clinical journals, you're not going to see that. I mean, occasionally a mistake comes because they have rigorous, um, rigorous peer review, and hopefully in most of the chiropractic-related journals, we won't see that either. Um, confidence intervals are really much more... Um, in clinical journals, you have to use confidence intervals. And in the top tier, you, they may ask you not to use p-values at all. Some people like to do both. P-values and confidence intervals, for the most part, will give you the same information in a different way. They go back and forth, and they should be completely consistent with each other. So a confidence interval and it, it is, um, you know, the... The effect size will be somewhere, or the clinical statistics, summary statistics will be somewhere in the middle, usually in the middle of the confidence interval, but it will be in the confidence interval. And a, and a confidence interval is something that is, it, it captures the uncertainty or that variability in sample size again. And often I hear it described, and I think this is the nicest way, is an interval of plausible estimates. So it gives you a sense of um, it gives you a sense of if if you have a lot of variability, it'll be a really wide confidence interval. If you have not much variability and big sample size, it'll be a narrow confidence interval. So it talks about how certain the certainty and the precision of the estimate of your clinical effect. And the nice thing about confidence intervals is rather than just being a p-value, which it just says, you know, oh, people like to hone in on the p-value. Oh, it's less, it's 0.04, yay, I'm statistically significant. Or it's 0.45, it's not. What the confidence interval does is it gives you that, it gives you an effect size for your clinical statistic. That's what it reports first. That's called a point estimate. And then it gives you an interval estimate and the in, of, of plausible Usually you'll see 95%, that's similar to 5%. Um, for a p-value, you'll usually see 95%. Sometimes you'll see 90% or 99%. That should be talked about in the methods. But the 95% confidence interval, you can look at the, at the, at the um, if you're looking at differences, you, you can look at the confidence interval. First of all, it's, uh, it gives you three things. It gives you the estimate. It gives you the direction of the effect, and it gives you the uh, measure of certainty or you know, the narrowness or width. And it gives it that very, very quickly. So we, you know, that's why it's really easy to look at, and I think it's much more relevant to thinking a clinician looking at. And so if you're looking at some of those measures and you want to get a sense of statistical significance and you have a 95% confidence interval, you can say, if you're doing um, mean pain intensity between the usual medical care group and the usual medical care plus chiropractic group, and you're saying how much did they improve on pain intensity in these two groups? Well, if zero is in your confidence interval, then you would not have a statistically significant um, result at 0.05. If zero is outside of those estimates, of the, the, estimate, the possible, um, possible estimates, then it's not very consistent with, with the null hypothesis and you do have a statistically significant result at an 05 level of significance or p-value of 05. 
similarly with risk ratios, remember one is is the important is the important number to think about of being no difference. And so if you have a risk ratio um, that you're that you're seeing reported, then you would look for is one inside that confidence interval. And inside the confidence interval means it's consistent with the null hypothesis that there's no difference. And so there there would be no statistically significant difference at an 05 level if you're looking at a 95% confidence interval. And similarly, if you see one outside of that, outside of that um, interval, then there would be a statistically significant result. Um, so you can always get at some sort of statistical significance by looking at a confidence interval. But what you also get is you get the direction of the effect, the magnitude of the effect. How big is it? What direction? Which group is it in favor of? And, and then you get some measure of precision or certainty in that confidence interval. So there's a lot more to be had, and you can still ask questions about statistical significance or if the authors are talking about their statistical, statistically significant results, you can say, oh, i got to look at that. Is one in that interval or not? OK, yep, that looks right. What they're saying looks right. So I would always, they go hand in hand, um, but I would always recommend that people working on research, if they, they probably don't even need to put p-values, but they need to at least put confidence intervals. I will tell you that the top tier journals will want confidence intervals, and often they won't want p-values at all because they just feel like people don't look at the actual measures enough. You know, the confidence interval can also tell you about clinical significance because you have or the clinical importance, because you have that effect size or that point estimate first before you have the interval of plausible estimates. So, you know, I hope, I think we see a lot more confidence intervals than we used to in, in, in the chiropractic literature. And, and I, you know, that is, the, that is the standard for clinical studies. And really, I would say um, a lot of my basic science colleagues, whom that didn't used to be the standard, I, I convinced them, and then their journals convinced them that, oh, they should be giving confidence intervals also. And so that, that's a nice, there's still a lot of basic science journals that only give you p-values, but you see a lot of confidence intervals out there now, which is nice. Great. Yeah, thanks for the uh, explanation. That was, that was really good. I appreciate the background as well and uh, the relevance to chiropractic profession. Um, how about uh, power? How does that play in? Yeah, power. So this power is linked with sample size calculation and sample size. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. They think there's something. So sometimes you'll see in a paper, you'll see, we did power analysis, and this is how we determined that this was the number of participants we needed in our study or in each group. Um, and sometimes you'll say sample size calculation. And sometimes then they'll say, well, we did power analysis. But they are, they're interchangeable terms. You use the same things. Um, you use usually some power analysis to get at your sample size calculations. But you can just think of that as, oh, it's how they calculated um, how they calculated the, the how many participants they needed in their study. And let me tell you, this is the one I have. I have some note sets here because this is what this is the one I always say when anybody asks me, in particular my students. I say there's no magic involved. Because this is the one, it's always, it seems so, un even some really, really um, good scientists will sometimes just sort of, I think, lose it for a day. And they'll, they'll walk in and they'll say, 
you know, I'm working on this study and I really need, I, can, you, can you calculate a sample size for me? To my, me, their biostatistician. And what you hope, if, you, if, if you're in this situation where you're actually doing the research and you're asking someone, um, you, you should expect about five questions. Because I need all kinds of, I, I mean, I, I have the tools to put some numbers in to try to help you with that. But you have to come up with a bunch of things. Number one is we need to know what your, you typically do power analysis and sample size calculations around one or two primary outcome or primary response variables, the ones that you're really hanging your hat on. And typically for us in our, in our pain-related research, that's typically pain intensity and pain um, disability. Sometimes now there's a new measure, pain interference. How much does pain interfere with your daily activities? We're starting to use that a little bit. But that's, that, that's the PI has to choose that. You know, that's the investigative team needs to decide what, what is the most important variable. And that's what we're going to calculate our sample size around. You need, to de you need to determine what the most important comparisons are. If it's a two-group clinical trial, then you're going to look at the differences in that outcome measure between groups after probably a course of care and intervention or something. Um, but if you have, let's say you have four groups, you know, you have different combinations of therapies. Well, you know, certainly that's something as a statistician I have, I, I can give you some advice, but it may be that you don't want to just look at all possible differences because that, that might need a really big sample size. Maybe you have, um, you only, you have a control and then you have some different interventions and really your primary comparison of interest is each of the different interventions with the control. That's, that's only three comparisons. If you did all pairwise comparisons, you'd have eight comparisons. So that's something that the, that the, the investigative team needs to think about. And, and I know that a lot of people listening to this are, are clinicians. They're not doing the research, but this is what you need to be looking for in your statistical methods section of the paper because the author should be telling you how, how they came up with all of this. Obviously, when we do inferential statistics, so sample size calculations, do not need to happen if you're only going to describe your sample. But when we do studies, we typically want to make inference. And so you have to have some idea about what the variability of your chosen outcome measure is. Um, for, for the ones I've been talking about, there's quite a bit of literature out there. Um, pain, um, pain intensity, pain-related disability, and now pain interference is pretty new, but it does have some literature out there now, too. And so you can go to those prior publications and look for publications, or the author should look for publications, or should have, um, that report it um, in similar patient populations. So if you're looking at chronic low back pain, that's where you should be looking at it and, and, and see, okay, what kind of variability did they find? Are they in a... Are they in a um, um, ambulatory setting like we are. Okay, then that's, you know, that might be a good, um, a good uh, variability to say we're, we, we feel like the, the variability of the measure is going to be around here. If you don't, and this, I think we talked about this a little bit before, Dean, if we, if we don't have really any idea about outcome measure, that's when you need to do a, a pilot study or a feasibility study. I will say, I, I will say that if it's a pilot study or a feasibility study, you don't do a power analysis. You still have to 
talk about how you came up with your sample size, right? You're putting patients at risk in a research study, and you always look at the risk-benefit ratio. But if it's a pilot study, you're probably going to say, well, we felt like we needed 10 in each group to really be able to, to test all of our, our methods and to get some estimate, uh, some sort of effect size, some estimate of effect, and some estimate of variability. And then in the next study, where you do a formal sample size calculation with power analysis, you would then use your estimate of variability to calculate it, the, the, the necessary sample size. Um, the other thing we've talked a little bit about before is that you need to know what the clinically important effect, and this is what I would call clinical importance, right? What is the clinical important effect that you want to um, detect be between the two groups for your, for your data analysis? And sometimes this is called the effect size. I already talked about effect size before, which is a little different um, meaning of effect size. So it's really... Sometimes it's called a minimal clinical important difference, or MCID, if you've ever seen that in the literature, minimal clinical important difference. And that says, how much better does that one group need to be on, that on your primary outcome measure than the control group for you to say, okay, that's a clinical important effect. So you actually do sample size calculations around that clinical importance that you've, that you've already determined. And... And then you have to decide what's your level of significance and power. So the level of significance, I'm going to come down to tell you exactly what power is in a minute, but, but um, the level of significance, if it's 0.05, that's fine. If it's 0.025, that's fine, but you have to use what you're going to use in your study. Um, if it's 0.1, that's fine, but you have to use that in your study. Um, and power specifically is and we, are, we often see this as 80% or 85% or 90%, the bigger the better, is the chance that if there really is a difference out there, we don't know what the population, the target population, we don't know what the truth is. We're taking a sample from that and we're just going to say, okay, we want, we want the best chance we can get. And usually the bottom line there is 80%. We want at least 80% chance that if there's an effect out there, we can... We can um, we can detect it with our statistical analyses. So sometimes you'll see that at 80, sometimes you'll see it at 85, sometimes you'll see it at 90. Obviously, you can't have it at 100 because you don't know that you're always going There's got to be some uncertainty there, and you'd have to have thousands and thousands and thousands of, of patients if you were getting up towards 100, um, 100%. But that's what power is specifically, but power in general is part of the sample size calculation. So... When someone comes in and talks to me, you know, I, they come in and I say, well, I need a whole bunch of information from you. And then I would be happy to either me or, or <laughs> my associate, um, who's also a biostatistician, that we can use the statistical software we have. And actually, there's a bunch of good web software out there. Um, um, Russ Lent, L-E-N-T-H, has just a nice little package out there. He's a statistician at the University of Iowa, really nice guy, some great little commentary that goes along with it. That for sort of the standard statistical tests, you know, I have my students use this because they need to learn how to do this on their own. And very, very, but you have to know all of these things before you go in and use the software. These are the questions you have to ask. And otherwise, if we're obviously for grants, we you don't just sort of choose 
one thing and say, this is my sample size. You usually look over a lot because you might put in all of your information and you need a sample size of 500 in, in both groups and you don't, have the, you don't have the funds, you don't have the time to do that kind of study. And you say, well, what if I move this around a little? What if, my, what if we look for a little bigger effect size? What if, we look, what if I go over different variability and we really tighten up and can tighten up that variability? What if we um, do 0.10 for my significant um, level of testing or we were doing 95% power, but now we'll go down to 80%. And then you look at, because you need to get numbers that you can actually realize, right? Right. And so those, so typically, and often you'll see, you'll hear people call, we don't have room in publications or, or grant um, um, submissions anymore to put power curves, but that's what I usually do for my colleagues is, and it would be a curve, and they can look at all the kind of constraints and sort of say, this seems reasonable, but then that has to be reported in the article. So as readers, you need to say, and, and if they're doing inferential statistics, okay, there needs to be a, a, a formal sample size calculation or power analysis. Otherwise, it, it doesn't make any sense. One other thing that I will mention about power and sample size calculations is there's no, there's no such thing as post hoc power, meaning the power is calculated prior to initiating the study and collecting any data. And I still see people coming. I mean, I even had a reviewer come back saying, well, you didn't say anything about your post hoc power. It doesn't make any sense once you've collected the data. It's something that you're doing in anticipation of doing a sound study with a big enough sample size that you will be able to detect the differences that you think are clinically important, but not any bigger than that because you don't want to, you know, every research study has inherent risk and we look at the risk-benefit ratio. So you don't want to be bringing 200 people in, into your study if 100 is sufficient to get a clinical significant result. Right. 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 Yep. One other thing I'll mention about power is, and you didn't put this on your little list for me, but this we see a lot. We see um, that we have um, small, medium, or large chance or of, of getting effect or, or something like that, right? Small, medium, large. And none of the specifics I just talked about, nothing about the primary variable or the important comparison or any estimate of variability or the effect size. And, that, and they say this is based on Cohen 19, uh, probably 79 or something like that. And it is, it is it's just ridiculous because there's none of these things that are important about sample size calculation. And you would get the same sample size calculation each time for a small, medium, or large. Um, Russ Lentz has a nice little thing. He calls them, you know, it doesn't help to have a, a, a T-shirt size when you're trying to calculate sample size. That's nice. <laughs> and it's, it's sort of that situation that you brought up a little earlier, Dean, where you said, well, what if there's no information about what the clinically important effect is? And I think that that's usually when um, we come into this small, medium, or large because no one knows. Right. And I guess what I say is then you shouldn't be doing a formal test. You should be doing a pilot study and get some information. Yep. Um, it, 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 it makes no sense. For sure. Well, as we uh, start to wrap up here, I, I did want to ask uh, 
one one last question, um, and that is something that I hear quite frequently, and I see on Facebook and social media, in the media, all over, and that is uh, uh, a misinterpretation, I guess I'd call it, regarding correlation versus causation. Can you speak to that just for a okay. minute or two? Yeah, definitely. So, and this is this is a hard thing. It really is association versus causality. And and when we do a clinical trial, for instance, it's always a study that's going... Is that what you asked me? Yeah. Yep. Am I on the right? Yeah, okay. association <laughs> versus causation. There was something else on my, my piece of paper here. I just wanted to make sure I was answering the right question. When you're, when you're going forward in a clinical trial, for instance, you know what the patients look like at baseline, and then you follow them, and... You try to take out anything that could be happening to them other than the, the, the different treatments and so that, so that you can attribute all, all their improvement or, or typically in chiropractic we're looking for improvement in pain or whatever to the treatment itself so that the treatment caused that. And, you know, um, that, and, and so in a clinical trial, you can, you can, you can interpret your results as causality. However, we have a lot of different study designs. And in particular, we see a lot of cross-sectional surveys. A survey is cross-sectional. You just get everybody at one slice in time. And we can still analyze that data sort of to, to, generate, um, to, to generate hypotheses that we think might be happening. So, you know, we, we, we see if people had gone to chiropractors. You know, we've got quite a few surveys going on here. The Gallup has been doing some. So we see if if if, um, if 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 respondents to the survey say that they saw a chiropractor in last year, and then you ask them about back pain, and have they had back pain in the past year, and you can you can you can say is there an association between those that had back pain and those who saw a chiropractor, right? But we don't know. They may have seen a chiropractor long before they had back pain, or vice versa. There's no causality necessarily there. You would need to use that then to ask some research questions that you would need to look at something like a clinical trial or, some, or a cohort, say something that went pers- was a prospective study where you were bringing in your participants and then following them over time, and, and then you could, you could say causality. And in particular, there are, there are other kinds of studies. Um, we don't see these as much in, in chiropractic, but certainly in any hospital-based or any kind of rare conditions, you, see, you can see articles that they get, the, they get participants that have a certain outcome or a certain disease, and then they look back at their history and to try to get a sense because it's really hard to do something perspective if you have a rare condition. and Or maybe it's just, well, we think there might be something going on, but let's use this EHR data that we have to kind of take a look to see if there's an association because if you're looking backwards, you can't prove causality. You don't know when things happened relative to one another. You can only know that if you're looking at a prospective study where you know everything about the participants, relative to what you're studying, and then you move forward. That's the only place that you can say causality. And we see a lot of those words bantered around sort of interchangeably, I think, is what you're, what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And I see that, but we have to be very careful. You can only look at causality in prospective studies. Everything else is just association. Might be really interesting, but you would have to test it in a prospective study to really be able to say, okay, this is, this is the way I think it is. Perfect. Well, I'd like to end uh, today's um, talk with a, a question, and 
That's the question I always ask everybody right at the end, and that is, could you offer any advice to aspiring students or chiropractors who might wish to become scientists or researchers? Well, we need more than you could imagine. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, what I, well, you know, it would be great to have a lot more clinicians involved in some in some way uh, in the research or or to become research now at, at the same time I'll say that it, it's not a it's not an easy path I mean you know that scene right you have a PhD yeah um, and you don't necessarily have to have a PhD but you have to have training and you have to have adequate good training you know you need to and so that probably means it's difficult I don't know if you, were you practicing when you did your PhD I still am I've never left practice Okay, okay. So, and so, you know, there's only so many hours in a day, right? You may need to do, do it a little slower. You may not have much time on the offsite. And the other thing I think that, when, you know, we do, people who do research do not do it for the money. You can make a lot more money in clinical practice than you can as an academician or a researcher. But, so, so people need to ask themselves, what their motivations are, but if it's to answer questions, and it, I guess the thing that I can say, and I think you can probably say this too, Dean, in your environment, is that I come today, every day I come, there's some intellectually stimulating discussion happening. You know, it's always asking questions and looking at papers and working on research studies, and never is there a dull day, and it's exciting to, you feel like you make a difference right? Um, everybody has to ask for themselves. What I will say is we, we've been trying to train the next generation and we, you know, we have oh, about 35 graduates from our very small graduate program masters in clinical research and, and you know, a chunk of those are either continuing their, their, their research education and, and mentorship and, you know, are, are, you know, early researchers and some of those work in the research arena, quite a few of them do, but don't ask the questions. But I think they still find a, a lot of um, a lot of um, they feel good about that. It's, it's it's exciting again to be in that environment. Many of them are in academic settings where maybe they have taken their their, their clinical research um, tools that they learned and sort of turned them sideways and are doing educational research. So that's very exciting. They're still doing research, and even. Even, you know, some of them go back into private practice, but every, every single student I've seen that's gone, you know, that I see when they come back for homecoming or something, they'll say, you know, I'm such a better thinker now. <laughs> you know, I think, that, I think critically so much better. I, I, I you know, I just I have a set of skills that I couldn't imagine having practiced without. Of course, you don't know what you have until you get it, right? For but, sure. Um, I think there are just wonderful opportunities for researchers. So if, if, if people are saying, you know, this is not enough for me, just full-time practice, and that's what a lot of uh, our prior students were. That, you know, they, they, they loved everything about it, but they just full-time practice wasn't enough for them. And they were able to say, okay, this is going to be a different um, monetary benefit, and I'm going to have to put the time in because it does take time. But I think... Every single one, certainly that I we have we we employ quite a few of them at the research center. Of course, we like to keep our, our best students here if we can, um, um, especially if they want to just sort of be. We want we, we want to keep them around, and and I think every day they 
they are saying this was the right move to me. I'm so glad because, you know, it's only recently that I think um, people in chiropractic programs know that, you know, research is one potential um, career path. It was always, you know, you're a clinician, you're an educator, or there's nothing else, right? Right. I will definitely say research is a career path, and there are, I mean, certainly if people are interested, give me a call. Give um, Christine Gertz a call. Give, uh, you know, um, other chiropractic researchers you know a call about, you know, what it would take. And, you know, we have, we have people that didn't actually, I mean, you know, Don Murphy is a perfect example. I mean, he's a busy clinician, but he has continued to do things in his practice that have been super relevant. Um, I mean, that's sort of, not many people can do all of that, but certainly Don has done a, a great job of that. Um, so there, so there are a lot of, I think, avenues. Start asking questions right away, <laughs> um, but but we need so many more. So I would love, I would love, to, I would love to hear from some of your listeners about, um, you know, what they're interested in and 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 whether they should potentially think about a career. Maybe it's a complete career change, or maybe it's just a shift in. And, and such, and then there's there, finally there there are some not many in chiropractic, but practice-based research networks out there that they could be involved in research in terms of getting their getting patient data and and all of that, but not have to actually do the research. So I think there's just a wealth of opportunity, but we need research scientists because I I think when we started our program in, in clinical research, we got a grant to do that from NIH, and and what we said then, and what I think we still believe is that the best people to answer questions about the, the efficacy, the effectiveness, and the safety of chiropractic are chiropractors, right? Absolutely. If PTs are doing all your research, and PTs do a lot of manipulation research. It, it, you know, they may have a completely different thing in mind, and so I, I certainly believe that. I will always believe that. For sure. Well, I've really enjoyed uh, our discussion today, and, and I appreciate you coming on to the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me, and uh, I'll, I'll look forward to hearing uh, you know more of your podcast because I, I see a lot of interesting ones on there. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thanks again for listening to this great interview with Dr. Cindy Long. I hope you now have a greater appreciation for the role of statistics in chiropractic research. Stay tuned for more episodes. If you have suggestions or comments about the show, please let me know. Bye for now.